fish on. Hey, Radcast is on. Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. From the Porter's 10Cast Studio, here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Welcome to another episode of Radcast Outdoors. I'm Patrick. I'm David. And we are here doing another podcast for you. We're going to touch on some taxidermy and some hunting. Um, but first, uh, if you haven't done so already, please go to anywhere that you get your podcasts, like, rate, share, do all those fun things for us. That's really how we get our name out there. So if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, go do that. If you're doing Spotify, Stitcher, any of those, make sure you do that. And also, we have the brand new ragcastoutdoors.com. So please go there, check it out. We've got recipes on there for you. We've got all of our podcasts posted and lots of other great information. So make sure you go check that out. We also have the new Radcast Outdoors hats that you can get right at radcast.com. Yep. So if you like the show and you want to help support us, buy a hat and uh, we'd really appreciate it. So I have a special guest today. His name is Gene, and I get to work with him over at the college, which is awesome. So I've, I've heard some stories and got to spend some time with him, but I thought it would be cool to bring him on. Um, he's been here in Fremont County for quite a while, um, doing different things in the outdoors as well as law enforcement. So Gene, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about where you're from and you know, kind of how you got into the outdoors as a kid. Okay. Well, I... Grew up in Nebraska, kind of east central Nebraska, and dad got me my first 22 when I was in the third grade, um, and I started rabbit hunting, and from there on, I was hooked. Um, we also did catfishing back there, um, and so outdoors was just kind of my passion growing up um, when everybody else was doing, I guess, scheduled or organized sports i was outdoors hunting fishing doing things like that i know i signed up for football when i was a sophomore in high school and then learned it was gonna interfere with <laughs> archery deer season so i turned all my stuff back in and that was the end of that gene you're speaking my language my friend <laughs> the uh the uh, dean of the school in high school came out one day and i have left my shotgun case on the seat of the of the pickup right because i i was post you know take your guns to school so i'd go duck hunt in the mornings run home take the shotgun out of the case the decoys everything else was in the truck and then i'd run to school and there was one day knock on the classroom pull me out of class like well can you leave the case at home too i'm like well i go home put it back in the case and it's ready to go in the morning but yeah i can leave the case at home too huh well i could still bring guns to school at that time (laughs) when i was in high school so yeah so I wanted to ask you, how did you get to Wyoming? What was the what was the big thing that brought you to, to Wyoming? Hunting and fishing. Hunting and fishing. When Judy and I first started going together, um, we talked about moving to Wyoming. Both of us wanted to go to Wyoming. And at that time, um, I hadn't got into law enforcement yet, but we talked about it. Then when I became an officer, um, I was an officer with Columbus, Nebraska Police Department for about six years and at that time, I was pushing 31. And if you want to be an officer somewhere, generally, you need to be there by the time you're 30. And so we decided if we were going to get to Wyoming, we best do it. So started looking around and um, ended up at Lander. Yep. And that was in 1988. 
And Lander, for those out there that are from other states, is one of the coolest places you can live. I mean, it's it's got hunting and fishing everywhere. I mean, you literally, I was just up at Sinks Canyon in this weekend. We went up yep. and did the falls hike. And, I mean, that's what, five, ten-minute drive from town maybe yep. to the trailhead. Yep. We could leave our house in Lander, Wyoming, and in 20 minutes open the doors to the Jeep and be elk hunting. It was awesome. Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Yep. So law enforcement. So you, you've been doing this for a long time. And so tell us some of the roles and places that you've done law enforcement besides Columbus. Um, I started in Columbus. And uh, as I said, I worked there for about six years, just a little over. And then in 1988, when we wanted to come to Wyoming, we moved to Lander. And I started there as a patrol officer um, worked my way up through the ranks, and in 2010, retired there as chief of police. That's awesome. And you wrote a book about it, which I definitely want to push a little bit on this show, just because I think it's a cool book. It's called Beyond the Blue. So tell us a little bit about your book. That book was inspired by, um, I don't know if, if you've read it or not, but there's a, I've seen law enforcement from both sides, we'll say. In June of 1977, I found myself handcuffed in the back seat of a police car headed to jail for DUI. Um, five years later, when I was going to Columbus PD to interview, I walked into the interview room and there sat Sergeant Chris Levos. Um, he was the guy that hauled me to jail for DUI. And after I'd been an officer for, oh, about six months, I asked Chris, I said, do you remember hauling my dumb butt off to jail about five years back. And he looked at me and said, good people make mistakes too. And that was the only thing he ever said about it. But later he told me, you're a good writer. You should keep a journal and write a book when you're done. And I took his advice and I did it. And that's, I wanted people to see what we dealt with as officers on a day-to-day basis. Give them a behind the scenes look at what takes place. And so that was kind of how I wrote it. That's cool. So, you know, how do does the outdoor lifestyle and law enforcement kind of go hand in hand work? Because there's a lot of guys that are in law enforcement that I I know or have heard of or seen that are, you know, is it is there a just part of it is get away from society and get to spend some time on your own? But what what's your reflection? Why why are so many officers involved in the outdoors? It is. It's a good it's a good release. Um, Law enforcement, I guess, by nature, is a stressful career. Um, you're dealing people, you're dealing with people um, at bad times of their life. They don't call cops when they're having a good time. So um, getting outdoors, fishing, hunting, camping, just getting out in a way, it's a, it's a good stress reliever. We've talked about that on the podcast a couple of times before, that the mental health aspect of the outdoors is very underrated, right? It is. I mean, just... Let's throw the, the big bull elk out. Let's throw catching the big walleye out. Just getting to go out and watch the sunset, yep. you know, and, and have a nice peaceful day with your buddies, with your kids, with your family. That's that's what it's the centered on. And then, yeah, occasionally it's nice to kill a big bull elk. Yep. Yeah, and I know you've had a lot of experience in law enforcement and seen a lot of things and had to deal with a lot of different situations. And I know, like, right now it's kind of one of those times where – there's a lot of people that are anti-law enforcement, unfortunately, or think that they are. Um, and for me, 
I've always appreciated law enforcement. I have a ton of good friends in law enforcement and I, I respect them very much because they're really good people. I think the problem is that we have a lot of people labeling all law enforcement as bad, you know, and, and it's, it's the way it goes anywhere. If you have one bad apple, it spoils the whole batch, you know, it kind of goes back to that concept. And unfortunately the perception is, is kind of rough. So I was going to ask you if you would just kind of explain what's it like being a police officer? What's it like, you know, going through that stress and what's it like doing that day to day so that people kind of understand and appreciate that? It's, I guess difficult to say the least. Um, you're not home for the holidays. You have to work. You know, I mean, it's 365 days a year, seven days a week job. So um, most holidays you're working. Um, your family gets uh, drug into it, I guess, if you will, because what you do um, affects them too. Um, I know our kids in school had had to deal with um, being hassled because I was a cop. Um, I had one guy um, that I arrested one night tell me, I know where your daughter goes to school. And, you know, so, I mean, you, you deal with things like that. Um, it's difficult. Um, I think the greatest benefit, I guess, that I could see um, a, a handful of times, um, I had people that I actually arrested come back, look me up on their own time and say, hey, thanks for doing your job. Thanks to you. I got my life in order and I just want to, you know, let you know I appreciate it. And that meant a lot. That meant a lot. Um, one young man I took, he had a, a pistol to his head one, one night. Um, he had been grinding it, trying to work up the nerve to take his life. And I talked to him and talked to him and talked to him, finally got him convinced that wasn't the thing to do. We're buddies now. You know, if I see him mm -hmm. in the store, we talk. Um, so, I mean, that meant a lot, being able to help people. And that's what being a cop is all about. It's not, I don't know any cops, and I was a cop for 28 years that want to hurt people. Um, if you do, you're in the wrong job. Absolutely. And so, um, it, it would be hard being a cop these days. It's, it's changed a lot. Um, like I said, I've seen it from both sides. I've seen it from inside the jail and outside. And things have changed a lot. Yeah, one of my best friends, he worked in corrections and did that side and then um, did some of the police stuff. Now he's in highway patrol. And I have a hard time because, you know, I grew up with him and, and he's the guy that he'll help you with anything. In fact, they had an article. He was crawled under a vehicle um, mm -hmm. off the interstate helping somebody, you know, and he's just willing to do whatever. And he served... I think six or seven tours now with the, with the army as well. I mean, he's, he's really served yep. our country and I just hate seeing the, the, the hate towards these people that sacrifice their lives and their holidays and their family time and uh, getting labeled as something that I think is unfair. And well, I know the, this, this isn't really outdoors specific, but it's coming from my heart that I just want to say thank you and I appreciate you for, for what you've done because the service gets forgotten a lot of times in oh, our thanks. in our news and our headlines and it shouldn't so um just on my way into town here one of our local officers was pulled over on the side of the road flashers on right slow down moved over she was he she was out uh helping replace a boat tire 
on a truck. Yep. There you go. I've changed a lot of tires in those 28 <laughs> years. And probably helped jump some batteries. Yep, and jump batteries, all kinds of unlock stuff. vehicles, all kinds of things. Yep. That's what it's all about is helping people, you know. Yep. I remember having a major flat blowout situation between Casper and Shoshone and having a highway patrolman help us out. And that was, yep. that meant the world to me just because, yep. I mean, it was, it was a mess and it, it never happens in a good spot. You nope. know, it always happens on the hill where it's kind of dangerous and not fun. So, yep. Yep. so again, thank you for what you do, but you're welcome. We so, definitely, yeah, go ahead. Gene, who was really instrumental as, as a mentor for the hunting side of your recreation? Uh, my dad, he was the one got me into rabbit hunting, pheasant hunting, squirrel hunting. Um, he never was into big game. And so that was kind of a, a do-it-yourself kind of endeavor. Um, deer hunting, I'm still not stellar at. Elk hunting, mm, I can hold my own, we'll say that. <laughs> um, so, and as far as fishing, was he also instrumental in the catfishing? And he whatnot? was, yep. And so... I was just in Nebraska last week um, chasing catfish, and unfortunately, the weather was awful. Weren't you with your dad? Yeah, my dad and I, my dad grew up in Texas catching catfish, so I mm -hmm. mean, it's it's just kind of an art for him, and the wind was blowing about 50 miles an hour there at Valentine, the Merritt Reservoir, you know where that's yep. at, and yep. so we ended up having to wait out a lot instead of using the boat, but... We caught northerns, we caught some cats, we caught some different things. But, mm -hmm. I mean, there's just something fun about going with your dad. It is. And chasing is. catfish and different things like that. Yep. So tell me a story of catfishing when you were young. Well, what was it that got you hooked on, on fishing? Just catching. Um, they fight good. They oh, eat yeah. good. Um, dad's favorite bait was chicken guts. I don't know if you've ever yep. used the, <laughs> the long white chicken guts. Yep. Thread them up the line, tie a half itch have a blob on the end, they can't resist it. Yep. We also like shrimp. Uh, yep, shrimp, shrimp works, works well. good. Yep. Cut bait. Yeah. That's the most expensive fish bait I've ever bought is, <laughs> is fresh shrimp. <laughs> yep. Crawfish work good, yeah. and they're not too expensive. Yep. <laughs> so well, on the hunting side, if you had to pick an animal and a species, what would it be? You know, what season, what animal for, for game hunting? You Art. only get one. I know, I know. I've thought about this. I read the, <laughs> I read the cheat sheet. Um, I would have to say archery elk. And probably at least some of the reason for that is my wife, Judy. That's her favorite thing in life. Eat, breathe, sleep, archery elk. When we go, um, if work doesn't interfere, we go from the time it opens until she either gets one or season runs out. We, we would go every day. Um. And there's just something about calling them in and getting so close. I think her longest shot was in the neighborhood of 32 yards, and her closest one was seven. Wow. And she's killed 17 so far since 1989. That's great. And that's, that's with a bow. With, and then she's got probably 10 or 12 with her rifle. And Patrick, we need to get her in here and talk about killing Yeah, I elk. know. We're going to have to have her come <laughs> in and talk about it. <laughs> she's better at it than I am, it sounds like. so. <laughs> Um, I started making custom elk calls out of antler, mm -hmm. and this is one that I made for her. This was the first bull she ever called in, and so I took, I shot it, but then I took the antler and made a call. So for, for you guys for that can't see it, it's a it's an open read, open read mouth call. Yep. Um, I, I we'll put a picture on it on the uh, old website. I cut each read and tune it to sound like make it sound like what I want it to sound like, and 
they work really well. So that's one of the reasons I really, really wanted to have you come on is that you, you amaze me. Um, just all the different skills and things that you do between taxidermy, cooking, making calls. I mean, you, I don't know anybody that does as much cool stuff like that, like you do. You kind of do a little bit of everything. So tell us a little bit about some of the hobbies that you do. Cause I, I had a chance to see your, your studio for taxidermy and some other things, but just kind of tell everybody kind of what you do when you're not working. Um, well, like I said, we do the custom elk calls and then, uh, my wife, Judy does custom ink pens, makes them out of antler, um, cast feathers. So I've got a couple made from pheasant feathers. She made me a, a pen pencil set with elk antler and roughed grouse feathers. Um, that kind of stuff. Um, all of it's related to the outdoors, I guess. Yeah. Um, and then the taxidermy course, I started that in 82 and Judy got started in 95. And we both recently retired from that, but it was a lot of fun. And I guess if I had a word of advice to sportsmen out there, if you're going to go hunt something that that you know you want mounted or if you're successful you want mounted, go talk to a taxidermist. Look at their work. If it's what you like, ask them, how do you want me to skin it? What measurements do I need to take? Um, how do I take care of it until I can get it back to you? Work with that taxidermist ahead of time. It'll go a long ways toward making sure that you get the best mount you can out of your trophy. Yeah, I was going to ask you as far as fishing goes, if I catch a huge fish that I want to have mounted, what do I do? Like, okay. what's, what's the proper care? So you're talking skin mount. Okay, so the first thing you do is you get the fish somewhere where you can quickly take several photographs. You want a good close-up, and I mean fill the frame with the side of the face. Then you work your way down the body, spread the fins, get a picture of each, you know, one on each side of the pectoral fins, uh, anal fin, tail, everything like that. Then um, make sure it's wet, wrap it in saran wrap, and then butcher paper and put it in the freezer. Okay. And they'll keep for a long time that way. Yeah, because sometimes you may not have time to, you know, you, you you may not be able to get to the taxidermist for a week, maybe two right. weeks. Right. And so you got to know what to do. And a week isn't bad. We Judy's had people bring um, walleyes that have been in the freezer for over a year. And that makes it really difficult um, to get the fins rehydrated and everything. So... It's important if you want a fish done and you want it done right, you need to get it to your taxidermist quickly. Um, if you're going to do a reproduction, again, the photographs are huge, and you want to get a good picture, um, again, the face, the side of the body, the dorsal fin, the anal fin, so that when I know when Judy did fish, she took those pictures, and then she would make sure every spot was right back where it belonged. Um, yep. so they all have to be repainted on. Mm -hmm. So good pictures. I can't say, um, just how important they are. They're, they're critical. So if you're going to do reproduction, you get those pictures, then we need a length and a good, uh, side profile picture and a girth if you can get it. And then they go from there. That's awesome. Yeah. And I know David probably wants to know about the deer and elk. So, well, you know, I, I think part of it, like, people don't understand on deer and elk it's like people's shoe sizes right mm -hmm. you got a myriad of just form sizes for each species so having some of those measurements is probably really 
crucial in getting something to look. I, I, I may have one at home that probably was a medium-sized blacktail that got a small blacktail form put on, and I'm not very pleased with it, right? Just because it doesn't, proportionally, it doesn't look correct to what right. it was in the field. Yep, and so those measurements are critical, and especially um, when you're in the field, do you know how to turn the lips and turn the ears and the eyelids and everything? So, I, Gene, I, I, I cheat a little bit. I went to guide school, and we okay. had spent spent a week working with sheep capes. Right? So you know how to Domestic. do this. We, we got trained to do that. But for the average guy that hasn't had that experience, you know, I, I want to hear from you, from the taxidermist, what, you know, what do you see – you know, of, of just the average hunter bring in their, their harvest that they want. They've obviously scanned in the field and like, Hey, I want to mount this. Mm-hmm. What are some of the mistakes you've seen that are pretty common? Um, cutting the throat. That's an, an old, I guess, tradition that you need to bleed them out. Once their heart stops, they don't bleed. Whether you cut their throat or not, don't cut their throat. Um, measurements. If you're going to take the skin off the head, some of the most crucial measurements are the the corner of the eye to the tip of the nose, the tip of the nose to the back corner of the mouth. Um, you almost need a calipers to do the uh, eye corner to eye corner. Those are critical. If you want that mount to look like it did when you, when it was on the animal, you got to have those measurements. And then back of the skull to the tip of the nose. And that'll get you pretty good on the head size. Then you also have to go three inches below the apex, uh, the axis joint on the on the skull three inches below that and get a a circumference of the neck and then go down again about five or six inches get another circumference of the neck the neck meat itself so that the taxidermist knows how big that form needs to be and then very critical is ask your taxidermist who's your tanner who does your tanning because tanneries are not all created equal and if you don't get a good one a lot of times that cape will come back shrunk and there's no amount of stretching that you can do to get it back. So um, pick pick a good tanner. Yeah. As far as bears, so we do have some people who listen that like to bear hunt. And I know you guys have done bears. So what about a bear? What's, what's critical on a bear? Um, again, measurements are really critical. And if you don't know how to do the feet, the best thing I can say is... Um, if you know what kind of a mount you want, and this is something that's really important, think about what you want. Do you want a shoulder pedestal? Do you want a, a, or a wall pedestal? Those forms are really neat. They don't take as much room as a rug, not near as expensive as a life size. Um, so think about what you want first before you get the bear down. Then let's say you want a wall pedestal. Instead of skinning it and gutting it like you would if you was going to do a rug cut, Start about the middle of the belly, go all the way around the body, and then case skin it like you would if you were skinning a coon or something like that. Like, like um, you're pulling a sock off. Basically. Exactly. And you get it down to the neck, then um, cut the head off there, take it down to about the elbows, and then cut the front legs off. And then that way, that taxidermist won't have to hide a seam. Um, there'll be no sewing involved. They'll be able to take the measurements off the head then, get the right form ordered for you, put it together, and there won't be a seam that they have to deal with. And when you try and sew that seam back together, I mean, you're never getting each one of those hairs back in the original place. It's as difficult. If there's no seam there. Right, yeah. exactly. So if you can do it without, it just comes out a lot nicer. Um, if you're going to do 
um, a life size, let's say. Find out whether your taxidermist wants it dorsal cut, which is from the back of the head to the base of the tail, or does the taxidermist want it rug cut? Um, every taxidermist is different. So um, some of them like the dorsal, some of them like the rug cut. Find out what they want before you skin it. If you have to skin it in the field and you're going to do a life size, ask your taxidermist for a sheet of measurements that they want. Um, I know I had a sheet of measurements that I would give my clients and tell them, this is what I need to give you the best mount. Um, I had a young lady do a life-size mountain goat. I gave her all the measurements. Um, everything went by the wayside. So it was, um, I managed to get it. It turned out really awesome. Um, I won't mention any names, but her husband drug it down the mountain instead of carrying it like he thought he could. There was no hair on the one side. Oh, man. And so, um, and there were some bald spots on the other side, so I actually took and had to cut out pieces and piece it all back together. It turned out gorgeous. She was absolutely thrilled, but I, I can't believe they're still married. People don't realize how heavy those things are. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big animal to haul down the mountain. Yeah, you don't, you know, you don't just pack a life-size mountain goat down the mountain. They're very muscular, so I'm sure that yep. was a difficult task. <laughs> yep. I've heard, you know, from some guys, they, they rave about eating antelope, and then other people absolutely despise it. Mm -hmm. And I, I think there's a at least a little caveat to be said about, you know, an antelope's a 90-pound animal. Yeah, if you shoot a big goat and you drive it around and parade town in the back of your truck for two hours, that meat's spoiled. I mean, you're shooting these, we're shooting these antelope at 90 or 100 degrees, right? So what I do is, I mean, we, we gut them in minutes. We take them back to camp. They're skinned, and they're quartered and on ice yep. before an hour. And I think it's some of the best meat in my freezer, some of the best table fare in mm -hmm. Wyoming. We've never had a bad one. We take care of ours, <laughs> and we've never had a bad one. Yeah. unfortunately we did get a bad one one year and i took care of it but i it was a buck that had been really chasing does really hard all uh, day we'd been watching him all day and it took us all day to get after him yep and i think he was just even in the burger there was so he was worked up yeah there's something to be <laughs> said for i think the adrenaline and the testosterone that lactic acid trying yep. to de decompose in the muscle if it, if it hasn't had you know if you really stress an animal right before it dies i think you, some of that flavor can be attributed to that lactic yeah, acid that could be so getting more into that taxidermy, I see a lot of people that cape their animals and that's what they do and they, they bring them in. So is that the most common big game like ungulate type mount that you see or saw in your career? Was it, is it typically the cape that most people are looking for and doing? It is. Like a shoulder, shoulder mount? Shoulder mount is yep. by far the most common. Yep. And what are those running nowadays in today's market as far as for – you know, mule deer, antelope, elk. I mean, I, I know that it, it's kind of a big spread. Like I know a place up in Cody, it's pretty darn expensive. But um, what do you typically see in the market for that? Well, it just depends. Like you said, um, out west here, it's way more expensive than down south. Um, but I know when I was still doing it, I was getting, I think, seven and a quarter for a shoulder mount deer. And that sounds like a lot. You know, to a lot of people, but you're looking at probably a hundred bucks for the tan, hundred and twenty-five to hundred and fifty for form, eyes, and ear liners. Then you got your glue, you got everything else on top of that, and then the labor. You know, you, if you're going to do taxidermy and do a good job, um, number one, you've probably paid to go to school. You've probably 
I know you have expenses to run a shop. You've got heat. You've got lights. You've got everything that goes along with running a business. So if you use the best materials, the best tannery, and and put the effort into it that should be to give you a lifelike mount, you get what you pay for. Sure. Um, I've seen some pictures of some horrendous um, taxidermy. When I first started, my first antelope would have scared the stripes off a skunk. It was bad. <laughs> Um, that was a read a book, try to mount it, did not turn out well. Um, so you get what you pay for, but I'm guessing um, a deer in this part of the country right now is probably 750 800 bucks maybe. Yeah. Somewhere in there. If, if people were wanting to try to mess around and do a little bit of stuff at home, where would you have them start as far as big game goes? Like um, if- they could... I'd say start with a rabbit. Start skinning no, rabbits. No, they're hard. <laughs> they're hard to mount. No, not not mount. Just as a as a to work oh, up to practice. To, to practice. Start, start trying to skin a rabbit, not put a hole in it. <laughs> right. And there then you when go. you move to a deer, you'll be fine. Yep. Um, if they wanted to try one, I would suggest um, probably getting one of the kits. They would they would need to get a video on the measurements and stuff. And there's a ton of of dvds out there now for taxidermy instructions um i would suggest getting a dvd learn how to do the right measurements get some reference photos if you type images of mule deer on the computer now you can get a gazillion pictures of good close uh close up of deer faces eyes eyes are critical if you get the eyes wrong the whole mount doesn't look good and so um get reference material and then I know Van Dyke's Taxidermy Supply actually has a kit that you can buy where it has the form, the eyes, the ear liners, everything. Um, get a video, study them, learn what they look like, and then, then try. Don't do it in front of your kids because you'll enrich their vocabulary. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's quite the challenge. It is. Um, it is. I, I, I had a largemouth bass done a few years ago, and... I know it took him quite a while, and when I when I saw the final product, you know, when you're looking at it, it's like, man, I bet that took forever, you know, just because it, it is so much detail work with the painting and with the skin and making sure that it's all formed correctly, and yep. it just takes a lot, a lot of time. And so that, we went to uh, Africa a few years ago, and my buddy and I, and we both took kudu bowls basically the same day, you know, skinned, caped, all by the same people, and when the capes got back here to get mounted, I mean, fortunately, mine was pristine, but his had a, some slippage right around the mouth. I mean, like a softball-sized slippage. Mm-hmm. And that taxidermist actually found another cape that had been ruined, but cut that piece of slippage out of the, you know, so it took two capes to put, make one, stitch them back together, replace And I've looked at it pretty close, and I can't tell, you know, that there's two capes on that. So, you know, there's an artistic eye, and it's a skill, and, you know, I commend guys that want to spend time doing that yeah it's hard that's what i had to do to that mountain goat was cut out the bald spots and piece in and get the hair pattern right so that the show side looked really nice so are bigger larger mounts like like you know a a large mule deer and a a large elk easier than some of the smaller species and then i know the predators are extremely hard predators are hard fish are the hardest i'll i'll give you that fish are absolutely the hardest um because you're skinning paper basically right yeah, well, even I can get the skin off, but getting them to look like a fish when I'm done, nope, 
Um, <laughs> Is that why your wife did a lot of this? That's why my wife did it. And she, um, she missed national champion by one point on cold water fish one year. And we still have that mountain house. I was going to show you that when you was out. Yeah, I, I need I to see that. Yep. Um, a, a deer or an antelope is probably the easiest thing to start with. A shoulder mount deer or antelope is probably the easiest thing to start with. Long hair. Yep, long cover hair. Cover some you mistakes. Can, you can cover some things up. Um, you can get lots of reference pictures. So, I mean... It, um, One thing I want to bring up as far as, you know, as I started caping animals, just, just you know, not taxidermy level stuff, but just in the field sportsman level stuff. You know, one thing I've seen is I like to do the short incision on the neck mm-hmm. instead of, you know, going around circumference of the animal in the middle behind the shoulder and then zip them all the way up behind the head. No, I just do an eight or 10 inch, you know, cut there and then start going off. And it takes some, takes a little more practice and skill and you need to practice on something mm-hmm. other than your, your big once in a lifetime mule deer. Absolutely. But probably <laughs> the hardest thing, once you get around the pedicle bases of the antlers and the ears are pretty relatively easy when you figure out the earbuds but those eyes if you're not paying attention eyes and then the inside corners of the mouth if you're just you think you're done you've got past the eyes you're safe and you're just going to town you'll cut the inside corner yep. of that mouth out you yep. cut the inside corner of the eye. so you really gotta there's a whole bunch of youtube videos out there too now you can go watch and pay attention ah. to what i'm talking about of getting it done right and yeah the eyes are probably one of the hardest and then the nostrils, I've seen people butcher the nostrils too, you know, the inside of the nostrils, getting that done right. But I always stuck my finger in the eye socket so that I would cut my finger before I would cut. Yes, that was the thing before. I say. So yep. from the outside, reach in and touch exactly. the eye. And then, and then pull, pull it out. And if you're going to cut the inside of the eye, you're going to cut the tip of your finger. Yep, exactly. So, but once a guy's done a decent job caping it, and, you know, if you don't feel you have the skills to do that, just leave it uncaped, right? Mm-hmm. And bring and it into the taxidermist. Cool. Keep it cool. Yep. How long, I mean, what kind of temperature range and how long before that needs to get to you so you're not r- risking ruining a cape? Um, if it's down, oh, let's say in the 40s and you can keep it in the shade, you've probably got three or four days before um, there's a chance of ruining it. Early um, season archery where it's like 80, 90? You best head for town. You get one, <laughs> if you don't know how to get it off, or if, you know, let's say you kill an elk when it's that warm, you need to get that cape off, uh, get your meat quartered, of course, and hung where it can cool, but you need to head for town or you're not going to have a, a good cape. Yeah, or good meat if you don't right, watch exactly. it. I mean, that that happens to hunters every year. They they yep. think, oh, well, I'll just hang it in the shade here, and it's still That's fine in, you know, October during yeah. rifle season, you know, when it's, freezing at night yeah you can come home hang quarters at camp and go out with your buddies and help yeah, them but exactly not in september and so that that leads me into if you are going to go on a september elk hunt and you're out of state call ahead and find a meat locker that you know there's plenty of them around i know most small cities have mm-hmm. mostly small western towns somebody's got a meat locker they're renting out yep so. and if you quarter it up you know it you can quarter one you can skin and quarter one if you just quick quarter it do you do that mm-hmm. i do and and we're hunting a grizzly country now so I quick quarter it with the skin on oh, and wow. put a bag over it and we hang it, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, getting it quartered is huge. Getting it off the ground and up where you got airflow all the way around it. And then we come back in the next morning. Right. But for whatever reason, I keep killing these elk in the evening time. It takes all day to get on the herd. And it's not the smartest thing to be doing, I will admit. We're hunting in a, a group and 
we we stay till till the job's done. Sometimes it's midnight or one o'clock till the you know the animals processed. We've hauled the quarters away from the pile and hung them, and I'm hanging them twelve, fourteen feet, not not six feet. Yeah. Well, ours are coming out that same night. We I know we've been packing elk at two thirty three in the morning, but they come out the same night. But we're not hunting grizzly country either. And there is a big difference. Yes. I mean, we talked to Dan Absolutely. Thompson about that. So if you guys want to know about that, that's episode 17. You got to, when you're in grizz country, you got to get moving. Yep. You don't have a choice to sit around. So, yeah. but I, I've, you know, back to skinning. If, I, if I've done a good job of, you know, caping and skinning, even head in or out, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if, as long as there's not any meat on there and it's relatively cool, I've obviously I've got a couple days and yes. bring it into you. So, yep. but the Y incision... It, that's the best way, right? I've seen some guys try and do a, what what they call a T incision, and I don't think that's as far as sewing it back together. Isn't the Y the easiest? I like the Y e- better than the T. Um, a lot of people have trouble getting the antlers off with just doing the Y incision. Okay, it's a little more difficult to get that the antler, you know, the skull cap cut off with the Y incision as it is if you do entirely up the back of the neck. And then you can pull it down. You're not in danger of cutting into anything when you're cutting that skull plate off. So I uh, actually use a flat blade screwdriver around the pedicles once you do that mm-hmm. Y incision. Yep. And, you and it come, comes right off. Comes right off real yep. fast and easy. Yep. Just pry it under there and work it around. It comes right off. And if I slip, it's with a screwdriver, not with a knife. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want to cut it. I, I have a question, and I've always wondered this. What is the craziest thing anyone's ever asked you to taxidermy? Ooh, good! I'm I'm kind of excited. This is uh, I'm ready. <laughs> I thought of this on the drive-in. <laughs> he's having to think because yeah, he's probably had a lot of interesting requests. Well, I've had requests for pets, which I did not do. Yeah, I I directed people that there's freeze dry services that do that kind of stuff. Um, probably the craziest thing, and this was my own fault. Um, as a practical joke, I did a mouse. <laughs> A mouse. And that was hard. I'll bet that was really that hard. That was hard, but it was an awesome joke. It was, <laughs> I uh, pulled a prank on a couple of our dispatchers. This was back in Columbus, and they hated mice, and I thought it would be great fun to have a mouse in their desk drawer when they opened it. You know? Turned out great, but it was hard, and the mouse lasted two pranks, and then it was toast. Yeah, I had another taxidermist do. He said he did a skunk and then put that in somebody's house or something as a joke (laughs) Um. so i'm sure you get as a taxidermist you know you did it for a long time i'm sure there were interesting requests but you know the one that always kind of boggles my mind but it it makes sense in some ways but you see the the people that they'll catch like a 14 inch rainbow trout or uh you know whatever on their visit to wyoming and then they they go home and they get that mounted and for me it's just like i'm like i don't know why anyone would want to do that but then again that may be the only time that they ever get that experience so Mm -hmm. i'm sure you've seen things like that where it may not be the biggest thing but to that person it's a big deal yep i've mounted uh forky horn deer you know person's first deer and they are thrilled and it was all about the hunt not about the trophy size and so yeah done a bunch of that and i think that's something that we need to do better and in the hunting and fishing realm is to be more appreciative of those things. It's like, yeah, that may not be a big mount of whatever. It may not be a, like maybe somebody did a 25 inch walleye or a, you know, a, a four corn deer, 
But to them, that was a huge deal, and they may have memories that that was the coolest thing that they'd ever done. Exactly. Yep. It's about the memories more so that, for me anyway, than it is antler size or fish size. Yeah, because it may have been that hunt where it was extremely difficult and you had some crazy events or yep. maybe with a kid, you know, that you were yep. taking out. So so all my mounts were uh, crammed in the spare bedroom, right? And I've got some stuff I'm really proud of. And I kept wanting to, you know, display it prominently in the living room. And I kept getting told, no, the living room was for guests and whatever and whatnot. <laughs> and my wife got to go on an archery antelope hunt and she killed, a, she killed an 80-inch buck with her bow and... For Christmas, it got mounted and given to her, right? She had no idea. And it, she was had a little bit of a blonde moment. Her 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 dad <laughs> and I were out there caping it, and we just said, oh, we're going to give the cape taxidermist for credit, right? So why are we caping it? You know, don't worry about it. We're just caping it. 80-inch goat with the bow is a, that's, that's a good goat. That's, that's awesome. Nice yeah. Well, when that thing got uh, delivered for Christmas, it went in the living room, and I said, well, wait a second. If that <laughs> one's going in the living room, this big black-tail buck over here has got to go, and now... If you see a picture of my living room, it's a uh, it's a little intimidating. It's pretty cool. It, it's kind of fun to walk around the living room and see all the different animals you have. My my wife is the same way. She was like absolutely no mounts in the house. Period. And now my largemouth bass is on on the wall. And someday I'm going to get some replicas of some other fish. But it's just you know replicas yeah. are a little expensive. They are. So switching gears a little bit, I want to pick your brain about you know your police training. Mm-hmm. applied to grizzly bear defense while elk hunting? Um, being aware of your surroundings, probably the best. I mean, that's your best defense that I can think of. And, of course, they can come out of nowhere. They are lightning fast. Mm-hmm. Um, when we're up in the mountains, I always have a handgun that, uh, in, you know, I've shot handguns since I was a kid, so... Um, my farthest shot, I killed a coyote at a hundred, little over hundred yards with a twenty-two pistol. Wow! And my moose, I killed at forty-five with a pistol. And so, I practice all. I shoot all the time. And when I'm up there, my handgun is not the holster is not snapped. It's ready to go if I need it. Striker fired semi or a revolver? It depends. Sometimes I carry a Glock, a compact ten millimeter. Sometimes I carry my uh, super Blackhawk, but I'll always have one or the other. Now, what's the Blackhawk chambered in? 44 mag. Okay. Yep. And that's what I killed my moose with and a couple of deer and an antelope. And so, I mean, I shoot it well. This debate has raged in Alaska for a while. You've got the guys that are the, you know, the 460 Roland or the 454 Casul mm-hmm. or, you know, those guys. And there's nothing wrong with that. I've shot a few of them and I had a 44 mag in the Smith & Wesson backpacker, the Skadium. Nice light pistol. I couldn't shoot it over 20 feet. I mean, it felt like somebody was breaking my hand every time. And I, for where I'm going, I really, I'm a big fan of a double stack 10 mm. That yep. just Yep, I sold a lot of them. I used to have a firearms license uh, when I had my taxidermy shop, and I sold a lot of people. They'd say, we're backpacking up in the mountains. What do I use? Glock 29. Mm-hmm. And uh, my wife shoots it well. My grandkids shoot it well. People are afraid of the 10 millimeter, but it is a sweet shooter. Well, it fits well in your hand, and it doesn't kick as hard as some of the others. Right. So if you don't have a bunch of firearms experience, going out and getting the 500 Smith & Wesson or the the 460 Rollins, probably not the the greatest (laughs) idea for bear defense. Absolutely not. If you can't, you know, no matter how fast you shoot, if you miss, you're still not going to win. 
Yeah, and you don't have any time because, like no. you said, they close on you in a heartbeat. Yep. So do you pack bear spray as well? Judy does. Okay. And we hunt as a team all the time. She's always got bear spray. And I say this, we hunt as a team. Um, we Bear hunting's her second favorite love in life. And so we were up checking our bear bait one evening. And she's up on the cliff. I'm down at redoing the bait, banging the buckets around. And I caught movement out of the corner of my eye. And I look up and about 15 yards away is a bear. And a black bear. No big deal, right? Yeah. I look up, and on the cliff here sets Judy with her binoculars. She's glassing the hillsides for elk. So I'm down. She's supposed to be watching to make sure I don't get ate by a bear. So Thanks, Judy. Um, so I watched this bear for a little bit, and the underbrush was, was fairly heavy by then. I had on my camo hat, camo clothes. So when that bear, he'd look at me, and then he'd turn away, and he'd look at me, and he'd turn away. Well, he turned away, and so I dropped down. So now my hat... And my face is sticking out of the underbrush. That's it. All the hair on him stood up. And he laid his ears back. And I'm thinking, this may not be good. And I got a handgun with me. Judy's still watching glassing for elk. So I, the bear kind of stiff-legged walked up and stood on a, a rock to get a little better viewpoint. And I finally whistled. Well, when I whistled and then he knew it wasn't another bear, I mean, he was gone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Judy never saw him. She was glassing for elk the whole time. So I was fishing on the Kenai River one of the first years I moved up there, and I had that 44 mag, right? And I, when I say I didn't shoot it well, I, I just shoot my 10 mm better. But I w I've opened carrying up there, fishing on the river, no big deal. I'm not law enforcement, not trying to harass anybody. It's just my personal protection. And we fished right up until dark to get our – they'd open the escapement and get my extra fish, right? And all these other guys are kind of, you know – looking at me a little bit like what do you get that pistol for here what do you got like yeah no no you don't worry about it see you later when i went to hike out all of a sudden i had a team of three or four people following me yep and we had a big old black bear right in the middle of the trail and when he realized it was people i mean he he broke about five trees running away to get away from us yep but until he realized it was people it was like 15 20 yards away yep and unfortunately there is that stigma about you know carrying a firearm open which you have to do when you're in bear country you need like you said you don't even have it snapped you're ready to go because you have to be quick you know i'll take my family up to the fitzpatrick wilderness guess what lots of grizzly bears up there and i've got four little kids and my wife that that gun's ready and sometimes yeah you'll get the people they're very judgmental with their eyes you know and, and you can read it they'll see you and they give you that look of like what are you doing why are you carrying a gun and I'll tell you what, I would much rather get the dirty looks than have a grizzly bear come barreling down on my family and I don't have a way to protect them. Yep. And, you know, because I'll, I'll carry both. I, I have the bear spray up on my shoulder strap and then I've got the sidearm on my right. Mm -hmm. So as a police officer, when you make an encounter with someone open carrying, which is legal in this state, I mean, what is your initial response and reaction? And I mean, obviously, it's, there's a whole body language and litany of, are we just hiking past each other on trails? Or were you called to the grocery store for a call out? But what's, what's some general public knowledge that I would need to know about open carry in town when I'm down getting groceries to go back to cabin? Well, if, you're, if you are going to open carry, number one, I guess I, I'm not a big proponent of open carry. If you're going in the grocery store, um, in Wyoming, it's legal to conceal carry even without a permit, okay? Open carry, I think, does a couple of things that I've never been crazy about. Number one, the bad guy 
If a bad guy comes in the store and you're open carry, guess who's their first target? Exactly. You just, you just painted a target on your back. You did. Um, also, if you're not aware of your surroundings like you ought to be, the bad guy could come up and snag it from you. You could be in a fight for it. Bad guy yeah. may not even have a gun. Yeah, but he might when but he's done. But now he's done and he exactly. has Exactly. Mm-hmm. So I'm not a proponent of open carry. Um, I guess if you don't feel like you need to have it in a grocery store, lock it in your vehicle. If you want to be, I carry all the time, um, I carry concealed because I never want to be in a place where I have to say, if only I'd had my gun, I might have been able to make a difference to somebody. You know, I guess that's the cop in me still there. Um, well, the statement is, you know, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Mm-hmm. It's a tool. It's an inanimate object. I mean, there's all these emotions surrounded it and, and attributed to it, but realistically, it's, it's a hammer. It's a screwdriver. It, it's no different. It, exactly. You know, it's an inanimate object, and I've got a whole cabinet full of guns that have never hurt anybody, you know? Yep. Um, it's the person... There's either good or evil, and if you're going to use it for evil, that's what you're going to do. Well, this year I'm yeah. changing up how I'm carrying. I've been carrying with a Kydex holster on my hip of my backpack, right? Mm-hmm. But sometimes I drop my backpack for lunch or for this or for that. And, you know, even you go to the bathroom, get your toilet paper out of the backpack. My backpack's now 10 feet away, and I'm yep. over there going, you know, if I get my pants around my ankles, literally. <laughs> it's hard to run that way. <laughs> it's going to be hard to run that way, it's and hilarious. I don't have my, you know, my bear spray's actually clipped on the other side of the pack. Yep. So yeah. I'm putting a can of, a second can of bear spray in the pant leg pocket, because mm-hmm. I, that's my go-to first defense. You know, these, sure. these happen so fast, that's going to be my first. Try and spray the bear, de-escalate the situation. Try and not even spray the bear, just try and go away, but... Yep. I'm I'm upgrading to a chest rig for my pistol mm-hmm. so that that chest rig stays on me, period. Doesn't come off. Yep. Yeah, I can see some value to that, especially if we're up around Dubois or somewhere around there. Because I mean, there's just such a such a greater chance for a conflict. That there is. It's it's kind of kind of crazy. I know uh, I had some friends go up just recently to Yellowstone. And they saw like 15 bears. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's. There's a lot of them up there, and it's not that we have anything against bears because we absolutely don't. They have every right to be there, but you just got to be careful. Well, you just don't want to be their dinner. Yeah, and you don't want to, you know, encroach on their personal space, their food. And their exactly. Surprise them because then they'll they'll tear your head off. Yep. But I don't want to live in my living room either. No, definitely not. You got to right. get outside. Exactly. And that and that's the thing. You you just have to be prepared and you have to be smart. You talked about something that I went through in the NRA pistol class is the the awareness piece Mm -hmm. awareness is the most important thing and if people haven't read the book the gift of fear they should they should there's a reason that you have these physical reactions in situations and and being prepared for those is not a bad thing it doesn't make you a bad person to be prepared with a firearm to be prepared with bear spray to be prepared with all these things do you have a spare tire in your car patrick exactly do you have a fire extinguisher in your house do you yep Absolutely. It's the same thing as mitigating risk. And, you know, talking about hunting, law enforcement, awareness is the most important thing in your arsenal. Taxidermy. Being aware. Being aware of where that scalpel's at, right? Exactly. But being aware of your surroundings at all times is so important. Even in, like you said, the grocery store. Yeah. How many people walk through a grocery store and they don't look to see who's behind them or what's behind them? 
or even to the side. I you watch people and they go in. I mean, they got a one track mind. They went in there to get ketchup, and by golly, they're headed for the ketchup. How about the cell phone people? Yep. I mean, yep. I, I'm sorry, but I've been over here at the college and watched people running, walk into doorways and handrails, and <laughs> yep. I mean, they got that fa- phone yep. glued like on their face like that. and have no idea who's around them. Yep. And we talk about that, you know, at the college. I do that NRA refuse to be a victim presentation. Yep. And that's one of the things we talk about is put your cell phone in your pocket. You don't need to be looking at it when you're walking from the college to your car, from the grocery store to your car. You need to be aware of what's going around you. You know, once you're someplace that you can safely look at that phone, then fine if that's what you want to do. But you shouldn't be looking at it while you're walking around. Absolutely. Yep. So um, I use mine as a GPS, Gene. And sometimes we're uh, <laughs> we're hiking in the dark in the trail, and I'm just trying to figure out, do I want to take the left or right? Yep. And I turn that thing on and trying to use the, the map on it, and then I'm just blind as yep. a bat, and yep. I'm stumbling. But, so I, I'm guilty, too. I'm not going to say yep. I'm not. But out in the woods done. like that, you're a little better off than you are at, like, a, a shopping center or mm-hmm. something like that. And by then, you're probably stopped. If you're trying to figure out where you're going, you're looking at it. Yeah. I want to transition over to one of the things that you bring joy into my life with, and that's the food you cook. Oh, how did I know food (laughs) was coming up? You know what I like to eat. So just tell us a little bit about what's your favorite fish recipe and your favorite game recipes. You know, if you could pick one of each, what would it be? I had to pick just one. I I can't top fried fish. I like, you know. White fish? Well, yeah. Um, like a walleye, crappie. Walleye, crappie. Um, you're, sitting down, you're sitting down, so I'm going to say this. <laughs> Carp. Okay. Um, I caught a couple of them. Oh, they were a little over a foot long sure. at, at Ray Lake here years and years back, shortly after I came here. And a friend of mine lived here in Riverton, said, don't tell people you eat carp. That'll be bad. <laughs> and uh, so when i caught those two we also caught a couple of cutthroats and a couple of walleye that day it was over at ray lake sure so i fixed cutthroat walleye and carp fried them different grease but i used the same seasoning everything else was the same and i had two big fisherman buddies come over they both picked the carp as the best hmm. wow yep fillet them off the off the skin, score them so mm-hmm. that uh, pin bones the bones all fry up when you cook them. And they both picked the carp as the best. I won't mention their names because you know I don't want to. I mean that's me. Well, at least I'm I'm not the only one who's played that dirty trick. I did that a couple of years ago. We we had caught a, a couple of suckers and a couple of carp, and I had seen some YouTube videos on certain pieces you could pull out of them that are not with the bones, with the pin bones and whatnot. So I pulled those pieces out fried those with it and i had them try them and they're like oh yeah this is wonderful and i'm like you know it's kind of funny (laughs) i've 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 once had the opportunity to uh, serve mountain lion right Mm -hmm. and i didn't tell anybody what what we were eating you know it was a wild game feed night and yeah just it's it's meat don't worry about it even this weekend i was talking to somebody like man i just don't think i can eat predators and we've we've talked to dan a little bit mountain lion and bobcat is a, a very good table fare I've killed three mountain lions, and yep, they're delicious. <laughs> so, I like to say that I'm a, a second-hand vegetarian, occasionally a third-hand vegetarian, 
And I hope I never meet a fourth hand vegetarian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so tell me about the uh, wild game side. What would you pick? Um, probably chicken fried elk steak. Mm. I that's good stuff. I entered my recipe in a contest and actually got it published in a cookbook. And, and well, stuff, let's hear so. about it because I'm I'm intrigued now. Um, just the basics. Just the basics. Um, I guess. I usually pound it with a knife. We've got a tenderizer since then. So we run it through a tenderizer, um, sprinkle a little bit of uh, Lee Perrin's Worcestershire sauce on it, a little bit of Clark's, uh, not Clark's, uh, Lowry seasoned salt, let it set for about a half an hour, then um, dip it in flour, egg, flour, fry it up quick comes out awesome that sounds really good right now and it's really easy it's quick it's easy it works with antelope moose whatever sounds like something a little bit of high mountain seasoning would go good on yeah it probably would probably Mm -hmm. so you also make a lot of good things on the baking side like with the rhubarb thank you again by the way for more of that you're welcome um you know just kind of tell tell somebody about rhubarb because I, i know down south, you know, different people like it, and they call it pie plant and different things. But here here in this area, there aren't enough people that appreciate it, I, I don't think, as much as they should. But talk about some of the best ways to, to fix and prepare rhubarb. Uh, my favorite's probably rhubarb topsy-turvy. It's a recipe my mother gave me. It's good. She made it for us when I was a kid. It's kind of like a rhubarb upside-down cake. Mm-hmm. Um, you brought that in one time. That was good. I did, and I don't have that memorized i'd have to write that one down but i like that um ever since you told us about the rhubarb cherry pie my wife's made a few of those um rhubarb strawberry pie just plain rhubarb pie we've we've Mm -hmm. used it in a lot of things um one of the custodians at the college likes to put a little sugar on it let it set for a while and put it on ice cream i haven't tried that yet but i'm going to that sounds good yeah i love the flavor so so back to policing real quick just what's one of the stories you want to one that sticks out to mind something I, I hope it has a happy ending but of your career i'd probably say i guess one with a happy ending well i brought up the the couple you know where people come and said thanks for doing your job and stuff but one with a little bit of humor behind it um i was up at the emergency room one evening i guess it was early morning probably about a little two o'clock i think if i remember right this girl comes through the door, emergency room doors in a big hurry, says, I need to see the doc. My boyfriend's been bit by a rattlesnake. And this is like March. And I said, are you sure it's a rattlesnake? They're hibernating. Well, he has one for a pet. Oh. So um, I says, well, tell him to get in here. Nope, he hasn't had much luck with the cops. He won't come in. And so I says, well, I'll go talk to him. So I go out there. And I talked to this guy, and I nicknamed him Rattlesnake Bob. I even, he's in the book. Um, <laughs> and what's the name of the book again? Beyond the Blue. Okay. But anyway, he, uh, he absolutely refused to come in. And so I asked him, I said, well, how'd you get bit? And he said, well, we got home from the bar. Surprise, surprise. And he went to see his pet rattlesnake, and he was teasing it like this, flicking his finger in front of it. So he bit his finger, the rattlesnake did. Well, then he wanted to make up to this snake for teasing it, so he picked it up and tried to kiss it, and it bit his tongue oh, and his lip. And so the doc goes out and looks at him, and he asks him how long it's been, and, and uh, it had been half hour, 45 minutes. And the doc says, well, 
I think it was 60 to 75% of the time they don't inject venom. So if you're, you know, it's not swollen yet or anything, you're probably going to be okay. So I wrote about it in my column. I used to write an article for the Lander Journal called Cop's Corner. And I wrote about it. And I, of course, like I said, I nicknamed him Rattlesnake Bob. And I put something to the effect in there that uh, Bob was drunk. No, he was way past drunk. I said, in fact, I bet the next morning the snake woke up with a hangover. And, <laughs> and Bob woke up wondering who pierced his tongue the night before. <laughs> so anyway, it made, it, made Nash, it made the Internet. It was circulating like wildfire on the Internet. And years later... I was working for the Fremont County Landfill just before I took the, the job here at CWC with the security department. And I was at the transfer station. This guy come driving in, and, of course, I'm friendly to everybody. I stuck my hand out and introduced myself, and he says, I know you. I kind of stepped back thinking, that ain't a good thing when somebody says they know <laughs> a former cop, right? Yeah. And uh, he said, remember Rattlesnake Bob? I said, yep. And he said... Well, I got my life in order. He said, I didn't completely quit drinking, but he said, I cut way back. And he said, you know that article you wrote about me? He says, I framed it and put it on my wall. I still have it. <laughs> that is one of the craziest stories I've ever heard. Holy moly. Yep. Well, I think this is a good place to end on this podcast. I, Gene, you're a wonderful guy. I'm, I'm really glad you came in and visited with us today. So thank you so much for being here. You're Beyond welcome. the Blue is the book. Beyond right. the Blue, yep. yep. How can people get a hold of that if they want to buy one? Um, I have a few left if okay. they want to contact me. Um, What's the easiest way to do that? Probably email. Okay. Would be uh, ggollets at wyoming.com. Um. That would be the easiest. Okay, I'll put that in the show notes so if people okay. want to pick up the book. And I have only a few left. Um, they sell for fourteen ninety five. Awesome. And a compilation of a lot of different things, I'm sure. Um, different experiences, different stories. So There are. There's, there's things in there to make you laugh, things in there that make you sick to your stomach, actually. Yeah. Um, just like I said, I wanted to let people know what police deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, and I think nowadays, especially with the climate that we're in, I think people should definitely read it. I think it's good to, because they keep talking about empathy for, for everybody. Well, empathize with some police officers and the, the heart-wrenching things that they have to deal with on a daily basis. Yeah. I think the biggest thing that's changed, and you asked this before about the law enforcement thing, is it seems like they're making heroes out of criminals now. Yeah. And that's just backwards. And criminalizing the police for doing exactly, their job. Exactly. Right. Well put. Yep. So, again, Gene, thank you so much for being on, um, and we really appreciate it, and I'm sure we'll probably have you on again and talk about some more stories. So, um, And, again, everybody out there, uh, we could use your help. Go to uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, rate and subscribe, and definitely go check out our website. I'll get the uh, show notes up, and you can learn more about Gene and – Maybe we'll even throw a recipe or something on there for you guys. So That's um, radcastoutdoors.com. Yep, radcastoutdoors.com. Look us up on all those platforms for your podcasts. It's Radcast Outdoors. And uh, we'll come back again next time with some more content. So, thanks. If you're out there with a pet rattlesnake, don't go giving it a kiss, please. Yep, they don't kiss well. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you.